We are Michael Vesey in London, England. And Jason Miles in Seattle, Washington. More importantly, you are the owner of a thriving online business and you want to become the best e-commerce leader you can be. We're here to get you there. For show notes with links and resources mentioned today and for other GC resources like downloads, just visit our blog, theecommerceleader.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the E-Commerce Leader Podcast. In today's conversation, we are going to do a deep dive on asymmetrical risk and reward. It's part of our e-commerce first principles conversations, and we're really excited to share this concept with you. We're going to start a little differently today with a reading by my man, Michael Vizi. Michael, are you ready to uh, share this fun story? Story time. It, it's very sweet that when you want to start things off with a story, you're like, oh, can we have a story? <laughs> I love your enthusiasm. And actually, as a marketing or even learning tool, stories is probably underused, even though everyone yes. theoretically knows it. So this is a story from um, George Glason's famous book, The Richest Man in Babylon. Quite a short book, much quoted, some wisdom in there, sometimes misunderstood. But this is an interesting one set in sort of Babylonian times. So a merchant is trapped outside the city walls because it's night time. It would be morning before the gates of the city would open. The merchant had just come back from selling his wares and had quite a hefty amount of gold coins on him, as you do if you're a successful merchant. As he began to light his bonfire to the camp outside, he began to hear the bleating of a flock of sheep. Another merchant, a sheep master, had arrived with his flock. They made their introductions and the sheep master mentioned he lived nearby and he wanted to sell his sheep for a good price in the morning. Suddenly, a house servant of the sheepmaster arrived and with bated breath warned his master that one of his sons was gravely injured in an accident. The sheepmaster was extremely worried and told the merchant he would sell all of the sheep at a discounted price so he could hurry home to his son. The sheepmaster mentioned he had over 200 sheep with him. The merchant's gold was just enough to cover the purchase price for all of the sheep. And the merchant knew from his experience that the other merchants in the city would pay at least twice the amount for 200 sheep, but there was no way to confirm this as it was too dark to count the sheep. The merchant was presented with an asymmetrical risk. As you can see, the flock of sheep there, the reward he could make by the reward was he can make a quick profit by buying the sheep cheaply and selling them in the city for a higher price. The risk was the old man might be lying to him and there were only 150 sheep in the flock. The merchant in the story ended up not buying the sheep. So the old man decided to hurry home, left his servant there to sell the sheep in the morning. The next morning, when the gates opened, other merchants came out and bid up the price of the sheep to four times the amount of gold the sheepmaster offered to the merchant. The first merchant had lost his chance to profit greatly because he did not take the asymmetrical risk. A wonderful tale from ancient <laughs> times that points out asymmetrical <laughs> risk yeah. is critical. Ancient times from the 1950s when he yeah, wrote exactly. that story. Yeah, 1920s, I think. The Vincent Man in Babylon, pretty old, yeah. yeah. So let's just walk through that story for a moment and use it as a framework for understanding asymmetrical risk award. And I'll just mention that Wikipedia defines asymmetrical risk as the concept of taking a risk that will produce a return that far surpasses the risk taken. This is the core concept that you want to have an outsized return and a very capped risk. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in that story, the guy was presented, he was on the horns of a dilemma there. He had the potential for a big payoff in just whatever it was, six hours or eight hours, but he had to trust that the old man wasn't lying to him. So the risk, the risk was he was being duped, being lied to. And the reward was this potential for doubling his money 
overnight. Yeah. But if he <laughs> gave up, but if he gave up all his money and he was being lied to, he could lose a lot of his money. Yeah. Right. And so that was the, the the situation he was presented with. This is the basis of every Ponzi scheme and and you know kind of grifter greed kind of shenanigan you get sucked into, right? Yeah. Huge upside, quick, right? Exactly. I mean, I would say I wouldn't necessarily say that the decision. I'm not a game theory expert. I, I haven't sort of fully played out the implications because we don't really know quite enough information. And that's what the first thing is. Working with incomplete information is yeah. an interesting concept that is implied by this. First of all, mm-hmm. now that's not quite the same thing as risk reward. It kind of it's like two Venn diagrams. They they cross over. I would say the ability to handle somewhat incomplete information and make a decision and a risk reward as part of that decision is really important. This is rather severely incomplete information. And I would say that in this concept, if I understood the merchant's assessment of the situation was, if he's lying about the sheep, I could be massively overpaying. However, I could double my money in the morning. So if you could lose all your money or double it, that's not actually very asymmetric in, in my mind anyway. Whereas if his assessment had been what happened in the future, which was that they sold for four times the usual price. Okay, I could lose 100% of my investment or I could aim end up with a 400% return. That would have been an asymmetric risk reward. Yes. So that's the first thing. The second thing to say is this, and this is a really critical point because then there's a Medium article this comes from, and I think we should link to this because there is there are some, I think, errors of thinking, if I may say so, that I think are really worth reflecting on. The first thing is this. Hindsight is twenty twenty vision. Knowing, as he quotes, for example, as in 2021, early 2021, when recording this, that Amazon is actually blown up as e-commerce blew up and et cetera. If you knew if you knew that back in 1999, it would have made sense to invest in a company that looked like it was on the verge of bankruptcy and was mm-hmm. part of the dot-com bust and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's not how we actually, that's, that's, that, we don't have time machines. So that's an incorrect way of looking at the past because what the merchant was doing mm-hmm. in the middle of the night, maybe very tired, maybe scared, was making a decision at that point based on the little information he had of the risk-reward ratio. So I think that's an important thing to say that we only make those decisions as we go along, and it's only retrospect that we see whether they're correct or not. But that's the the, the retrospect, the history, hindsight is for historians and business historians. As business operators, we need to be able to make decisions in real time about Mm -hmm. the near future. So that's what strikes me. Yeah, I, I take your point completely. Asymmetrical risk reward is got fascinating examples and a very boring example, <laughs> in my view, is putting a thousand dollars in Amazon stock in nineteen, you know, or two thousand one and waiting for twenty years. That's yeah. not really an interesting example of asymmetrical no, no. risk reward because <laughs> there's two components of asymmetrical risk reward that are super important in my view. One is money, the other is time. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. it's the combination of those two elements that make such a fascination out of this concept of asymmetrical risk reward, because we all know, I mean, I, we, we've all done things that are good, you know, investments, hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we bought our house 20 years ago, or we, you know, invested in Amazon in 2001, or I was early in Shopify investing. That's my best holding to be completely candid. <laughs> and so, and it's, you know, but that, but those are boring examples because they're not really that interesting. I think the more interesting example is when you're presented with an opportunity Mm -hmm. and you have to do calculation as to whether this is a good idea or bad idea for me and my business right now. Yes. And those examples, I think really, they spark our imagination and interest and really get our minds working overtime to figure out, is this a good idea or bad idea 
for an input of either my time or my money. And so I think that's kind of the the dynamic there. I, I do think investing in the stock market over time is is asymmetrical risk reward. It's just boring and it, you know, it takes a long time to play out. Yeah. That's my two cents on it. So yeah. I think examples are good, but I think defining terms is always good. Maybe I'm just too sort of old school classical yes. guy, but maybe it's British training. I don't know. But I think the first thing is I think it's worth digging into because asymmetric risk reward implies, okay, we'll leave asymmetric to one side. Let's talk about risk reward and define what do we even mean. Yeah. So I right. think it's important to be simple and yet clear. And like these things can get very complex very quickly. But Warren Buffett, who's obviously super, super sophisticated investor, said that risk is simply the probability of something happening times how bad it would be. Yeah. And I think those are two different concepts So the risk itself. How big mm-hmm. is it times mm-hmm. the probability of it happening? And reward mm-hmm. is the flip side. How big is the or the downside risk, as people call it sometimes? Yeah. And then the uh, reward side is how big the upside is, as some people call it in the investment world. And I think mm-hmm. we would do well to think in those terms in business world as well, in operators of businesses times how probable yes. it is. And well, I think those mm-hmm. those are separate concepts we have to tease out for ourselves, really. But yes. the size of the downside is, I think, considerably overlooked a great deal by a lot of e-commerce operators because yes. um, it really doesn't make sense to, to take a downside risk that will kind of completely wipe you out, even if the probability is 1% versus a rather crappy um, upside potentially. Excuse my friend, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going back to British, British ways of direct speaking here. And I think that that's really very, very everyday thing that we need to change our mindset about, which can completely transform the the safety of your business, the sellability of your business, yeah. and and the security of your future income if you're going to keep it for the rest of your life as well. Well, let's talk about your Warren Buffett example for a moment because his whole entire investing career has hinged on the idea, once he got into it, of um, using float from insurance companies in mm-hmm. calculations related to what he calls the super cat, super category event, you know, insurance, you know, claims like category five hurricane or, you know, that kind of, you know, massive earthquake or something like that. He, his whole business is predicated upon the fact, if it's really interesting, asymmetrical risk that he takes a very, I mean, he uses math to safeguard himself, but here's what he's doing. He's taken, let's say a hundred dollars a month from somebody in uh, California. And so in month three, he's got $300. But the risk he's taking is if he insures their house against a fire, they could a six hundred thousand dollar house could burn down. So his risk in 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 that con, you know conversation is really interesting. And so you know the insurance companies are really mastering this concept, yes. and they create a situation which they only uh, collect premiums to in a sufficient way as to safeguard themselves so that they you know, can survive and thrive for the long term. And they're basically, you know, playing in that space of asymmetrical risk reward all the time. And because if you look at it on face value, they obviously as a group take some real losses. They do take somebody's insurance for two months and then the house burned down, burns down. Yeah. But on the whole, they know best how to manage the risk and have actuarials that really understand the science of large numbers and and factoring those things in. So anyway, that's just one little, that's his context in which he's bringing mm. those phrases to the party, I think. It's important to understand yeah. um, what he's doing there. And of course, the benefit to him is he gets all of that money from all of those monthly payments, and that's called float in insurance business, and he gets to use that to invest. And that's how he, he became massively rich. He became a billionaire at 58, 
because he mastered the art of buying insurance companies and managing their float with precision investments in in wise you know stocks and, and buying companies so anyway it's it's a fun little example to think it about, is you know? i mean what would be interesting to me is is i'm not quite sure i mean i don't know enough about the insurance industry although weirdly enough because of where i live in Hampstead, it's just absolutely full of city people so like the city of london is not just london yeah. it's a specific one square mile which is full of financial geniuses like wall street yeah. and the guy opposite he lives opposite i happened to talk to him this morning he's an actuary by training so he, he assesses life's risk which is kind of interesting because we've got a 94 year old neighbor and and he is covid knocking around so we have some pretty dark conversations with him he's pretty pretty based on the numbers not so much humanity and then also we've got a, a family member who's actually ceo of an insurance company which right now is a horrendous thing to be so i'm not sure that in the end with an insurance company gets it right it's really very asymmetric it's somewhat asymmetric because that's their profit or loss it's a tiny bit asymmetric, I guess, but really I think it's about accurate risk reward there in that kind of, mm-hmm. but you're right. The ability of an actuarial way of thinking yeah. is, I think, really underestimated with, mm-hmm. uh, if you have a spread of products, like if you have 200 private label products on Amazon, the yeah. probability of, of, of some of them not working and some of them working across the spread of big numbers is actually the sorts of way that I think you've got to think much yeah. more than most people do. So that's one of the reasons I think it's relevant. I just want to give you one one example of an asymmetric risk reward that people take all the time, sure. um, which is sadly a bad one. It's asymmetric, but it's mostly <laughs> the risk of Amazon account suspension versus an upside and that is when people ask for reviews in in terms of in in return for some money or some kind of incentive okay yeah people still teach this stuff on facebook so they still ask it it blows my mind i'm like it's 2021 this has been a seriously uh, suicidal thing to do but that's an example of where the upside potential is a a review which may help maintain your conversion percentage and make the economics work the downside potential is your entire you know, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of revenue is cut off midstream. And actually, what's the probability of that happening? Well, it's actually quite high because they really take this seriously. And therefore, it's a horrendous asymmetric risk reward that you're entering into. And people make that trade, not intelligent people, but mediocre people on Amazon who don't know what they're doing, make that trade every day of the week. And that's just one very, very small example that through the lens of risk reward, it looks absolutely insane. Yeah. And through other lenses, it doesn't. And that's why it's a lens one has to use, I think. Well, so to, just to unpack your example a tiny bit, mm. as a let's just say you have a seven-figure business on Amazon. Mm. Any, risk, any risk you take related to violating an Amazon term of service mm. puts your seven-figure business at risk of being completely closed. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're ri- that's, I mean, at the heart of it, any TOS violation now, Sometimes people's Amazon accounts get shut down for completely benign reasons. And generally speaking, in that situation, you can get things patched up and, and fixed quickly. And, and, you know, I mean, there's resolution process there. But, but to your point, taking unnecessary risks for mm. small, you know, reward is unwise. And Warren Buffett's famous quote, I'll butcher it a little bit, but he basically said, to get what they didn't need, they risked what they did need. And that is insanity. Yeah. I would love and that quote. Something yeah, to the one. effect yeah. of that is his quote. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing to say is this, that if you're going to take, I mean, effectively, it's interesting comparing what I was talking about with Amazon with what you were saying about Warren Buffett and the insurance quote, because actually... <laughs> 
they got three hundred dollars in the bank th- in in month three of collecting the premiums for the house, yeah. and their downside potential is sixty thousand dollars. But the reason that maybe. works, yeah, whatever, six hundred thousand. Sorry, yeah. So, yeah. but the point is, they are very, very meticulous about calculating that, and they have the law of numbers numbers on their side. If yeah. you bought one house on that basis, or you insured one house, you'd be taking a big risk. And this is another thing that is is counterintuitive. A small business with with not many SKUs is a very risky thing because every single skew if you have if you try and sell a business that's mm-hmm. doing you know for i don't know a hundred thousand dollars or something to some buyer or aggregator because i talked to a lot of aggregators at the moment mm-hmm. and he said yeah think about it. it's common sense if you've got one business that that you know 50 percent of the revenue comes from one product yeah. there's a really huge asymmetric risk attached to that compared to a business that has a hundred products yeah. where yeah. if any given one of them gets taken down mm-hmm. it's not so risky so there's a law of large numbers that kind of mitigates risk when if you insured one house you'd probably be taking a much bigger risk than insured uh, ten thousand houses so that's another mm-hmm. interesting thing right i mean it gets very deep waters very quickly actually well, yeah for e-commerce sellers it does imply a portfolio business is wiser than a single product business yeah. an omni-channel business is wiser than a single channel business. Yeah. Although yeah, I yeah. will say Shopify is, well, I would have always said Shopify was for the most part, completely and totally bulletproof in terms of account closures. Although they've started closing people's accounts in the last few months, I won't get into the politics of it, but it is, you know, troubling to the, to some degree that they are now evaluating sites on their platform and choosing to close people's Shopify sites. I honestly would have never ever thought that would have happened. And we can debate the merits of that in a different episode. But nonetheless, omni-channel yeah. selling is less risky than uh, single-channel selling. And a catalog business with a lot of products, especially integrated products, is wiser than a single product business. Yep. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think what interests me is, I mean, first of all, we're talking very, very basic concepts, but they just generally aren't lenses through which people view Amazon. In the way they might view driving or cycling that there is risk that we acknowledge it that we calculate it that we manage it well so yeah what interests me more though what's more exciting is to figure out asymmetric risk reward because what that means is you can actually get a lot wealthier a lot quicker whilst yeah. maintaining the same level of risk which is very cool so i know you've got some fun examples here let's so so let's go yeah. through a couple of those yeah i think i've got a couple of examples that are, are fun and point out the ideas here the pretty nicely. One is, and I, you know, I just tried to figure out in my own personal work right now, what is example of asymmetrical risk reward. And so there's a fun one here. I think most people won't be familiar with the back end of this tool or how this works, but I'll just share my screen for those that are watching live with us. And I'll explain it for those who are listening on the podcast. I'm currently working on the audio edition of my book, e-commerce power. And that work is done through Amazon tool called acx.com. And so in acx.com as the author, sorry for the setup here, but I'll get to the asymmetrical risk real quick. For for authors, here's what you do. You go into acx.com and you tell them what book you're, you've got to publish and you've got um, two choices. You have a choice of, of paying a one-time fee for voice talent actors to read your book. So on a, on a finished hour basis, like, you know, if it's six hours and you'd pay six hours of their time at a certain dollar amount, or you can have a royalty deal with them. And this gets on the horns of the dilemma for them. 
and for me as the author in terms of the asymmetrical risk reward. It sets it up really interestingly because because what's happening here is uh, if I just share my screen and, and show it. Here's so here's a back end example for those who are watching us live. I set this project up so that I chose a fixed one time payment from a hundred to two hundred dollars uh, per finished hour. It's a six and a half hour book. So if somebody charges me $100 an hour, they know they're going to make $650. Now, this then is live for talent to start looking at and reading. And I have at the moment 150 people who have read uh, two paragraphs out of my book, which I put in here, that they could they could read for me. And here they are. And I can play them. And, you know, we could, if we were fancy podcasters, we could dub some of these in. It's just uh-huh. a hoot to listen to. And I chose not a young voice, not an old voice, but like a medium age voice, median age, uh, middle age voice. And I chose either male or female. And so all these people started reading my couple paragraphs and giving me their and, and submitting it. And in the tool, the way it works is I can favorite the ones I like. Out of the 150, I have eight that are sort of my top ones I like right now. Now, think about the mathematics here for a minute. What these people are doing is they are um, saying to themselves, I'm going to spend, let's say, 15 minutes to read through this manuscript and do a submission of my time. So they're risking 15 minutes for the potential upside reward of, let's say, $600. So 15 minute risk, no cost. I mean, no, no, nothing else, no money is involved and they could make $600. Now, if I would have changed the game and I would have made it a royalty based arrangement, they would have done the same 15 minutes for the potential future revenue stream of some amount. Now the future potential revenue stream, then they have to take a huge risk on me, my book, my ability to market whether they think it's a good topic, a good manuscript, they're taking a huge amount of risk for future royalty. But think about it. What would happen if they paid, you know, they got $600 payment for the one-time version and my book goes on to be a New York Times bestselling book with a million copies sold. They would have lost out on a massive future revenue stream of, of royalty payments. But they would have had 600 bucks. But if my book is a complete dud and no copies are sold ever, then that $600 would have seemed like an amazingly wise choice. And this sets up the asymmetrical risk reward on their side and on my side. Now, this is I'm on the other side of that equation, the other side of that gamble. If I get a New York Times bestselling book going here and I've only ever paid $600 for the audio edition to be done, I literally then get, it's technically the math is 40% of the audiobook sales I get from Amazon for me completely by myself. So that's the, that's the example. I don't know if that sparks any interest or yeah, ideas yeah, there. Does. Michael, but, I, I really yeah. like it. And I think what I like about non-directly normal, you know, I standard e-commerce examples is that it forces us to think about the broader concept and clarify the concept itself. Mm-hmm independent of a a particular platform, which I think is really healthy. That's one of the things I I hope we do really well here, at least we aim to. And that really reminds me of the, the, even for the authors themselves, letting go of royalty versus upfront payment for musicians. I got Mm -hmm. musician friends all the time who signed waivers saying, I will not claim my royalties. They they sign them off. And there's this famous, there's a book called Birdsong. I can't remember who wrote it, very famous British author about the First World War. And it's called Going for a Song in the Publishing World because he signed away his rights for, 
don't know, a few hundred pounds or a few hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. And it, of course, it became a huge bestseller. <laughs> so it's to some extent, we have to be wary of the sort of the one that got away, the fisherman's thing. And like, oh, I had mm-hmm. this really, really big trout once and it got away. I'm like, OK, well, yeah, I nearly invested in Amazon five years ago, but I didn't. That was really <laughs> stupid. But hey, you yeah. know, it's gone away. Let's not actually let's not look back too far. Yeah. But I think what you you make the point about this. You could get the royalty, but it better be quite big to outweigh the mm-hmm. the certainty of payment now. So I would say money now is worth a lot more than money in the future. And you can yes. do your discounted cash flow. That's kind of what discounted cash flow is about, right? What's the money of $100 invested in Amazon now in 10 years' time? You've got to account for the time, as you said. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is this, that I think people really get this wrong with private label products. The upside potential of better would be pretty big. If a burden in hand is worth two in the bush, I think in, in private labeling and in similar product development, a burden in hand is worth five in the bush. I mean, many of them will not take off the way you think mm-hmm. that they will. And we get blinded and we have to kind of get blinded when we're doing product development. We have to think mm-hmm. this is the best thing ever. And when we're mm-hmm. marketing it, we have to. But the mm-hmm. truth is it the, the market may not agree. And therefore, we need to be very, very mindful about we don't even enter into a situation where the upside potential is not very considerable. It's no good having this mentality of an average product will sell 10 units a day and it will sell, you know, 20% margin or something. No, I want really fat margins and I want a really great upside potential because quite a lot of them will sell two units a day and will make no profit. Yeah. So that's my, again, how it skews my thinking. Thanks for bearing with us while we go through <laughs> something as abstruse sounding as risk reward analysis or asymmetric risk reward as a concept. Honestly, though, I hope you've already gathered that this is a really, really powerful concept. In essence, it's simple. In practice, it's not easy to engineer. This is true. But if you obsess about finding or engineering it everywhere in your business, I promise you faithfully that this is game changing, absolutely game changing. I hope you've enjoyed today's exploration of a few simple ideas. The idea from the richest man of Babylon, that funny little story about some related topics, which is incomplete information and game theory, I guess, as well. You know, you don't know if what you're buying is good or not. The two elements that we're talking about, money and time, and also the fact that it, ex- it implies we're going to explore risk, reward, and the risk-reward ratio and assess those accurately before we then try and engineer an asymmetric risk-reward ratio. In other, in other words, we engineer a, a one that is in our favour. And we've got to define, you know, the Warren Buffett idea, reward is the probability of something good happening times the probability of it, so the upside potential, times the likelihood, the probability. And then we've also got the downside, the risk is the downside potential times the probability of it happening. And we've got to really define that meaningfully. And then look at asymmetric risk reward. So trying to make sure that we limit the downside to a very known quantity and that the upside is unlimited and the probability of the upside as well is reasonably high. And one of the things that we've talked about is, of course, in the private label world, that actually things are not you know, necessarily as, as clean and simple as we would like and that not everything we think is going to work works. But when it does work, we want to make sure we engineer the fact that it's going to work really quite in a big scale. In other words, in other words, the upside potential needs to be much bigger than the downside potential, and we tr- constantly trying to push the probability of success. Here's what I would say from working with a lot of pl- private label startup clients over several years now. A lot of people are too worried about trying to increase the probability to almost a certainty that every single private label product or custom product will be a success. I would argue that is, whilst you should work on that, the probability of it being a success is never going to be 100%. So rather than stressing about that, 
and trying to predict the future perfectly, you make the business more robust by making sure you limit the downside. That is, for me, the the missing piece. For example, I had a client who worked in an area with sort of cookware and he was a chef. So he had industry contacts such that if his private label product took off, he would enjoy the upside. And the downside was limited because if it didn't take off very well, he could sell it at cost to a trade buyer. That's the sort of thing I mean that is not impractical or theoretical. It's very, very, very practical, but makes a big difference to the fact that he could therefore afford to be somewhat more aggressive. So that's the sort of thing we're talking about. I think it's uh, something that you have to go and think through for yourself. You have to have big discussions. It's the thing that I would knock around a mastermind of peers, also discuss with a coach and think about how you implement it in a practical way. But as a concept, it's very powerful. Hope you're as passionate about it as I am. And uh, stay tuned for part two, where we look at some more examples from Pixie Fair, which is obviously Jason's own business, and some SPAC investing that Jason's coming up with. If you don't know what SPAC is, stick around, listen to the next episode, you'll find out. And meantime, thank you so much for listening. As ever, don't forget, if you like the podcast, to give us uh, a number of stars rating on Apple Podcasts. You don't even need to write a review. Just click a couple of uh, buttons or tap on your phone. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so you get this coming to the top of your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening. That was the e-commerce leader podcast with Michael Vesey in London, England. And Jason Miles in Seattle, Washington. If you liked this content, don't forget to subscribe to the show on your podcast app. For free resources, including PDFs and videos on topics like traffic, products and sales channels, just go to www.theecommerceleader.com. No hyphens, just as it sounds. Thanks so much for listening.